Hi folks, John Carlin here. As many of you know, Cyberspace is a new cafe podcast that I host every other Friday. Guests who've made a significant impact in the world of cybersecurity join me to explore issues at the intersection of law, tech, and policy. For this week's episode, I speak with Sean Henry. He's the president of CrowdStrike, one of the world's leading cybersecurity firms. The company is responsible for protecting and investigating cyber-related threats for clients that include the U.S. government and some of the world's biggest corporations. We discuss how to protect next month's election from cyber intrusion, the growth of cyber attacks during the COVID pandemic, and how to respond to the plague of ransomware. Should companies pay or not pay? Today, we're sharing a clip from the episode with listeners of Stay Tuned with Preet. To listen to the full episode, head to cafe.com slash insider and try out the membership free for two weeks. Interested students with a valid .edu email can head to cafe.com slash student. To the many of you who have chosen to join the insider community, thank you for supporting our work. Twenty twenty compared to twenty sixteen, do you think the average consumer of misinformation is in a better is in a better place today? Have we improved? Are we are we better postured to handle an attack? You know, it's interesting, John. You you and I have worked a lot of national security matters separate and apart from cyber, and we've talked about uh, uh, people who've been radicalized and those that have been self-radicalized. And you just mentioned here a few minutes ago, social media and how social media sometimes becomes an echo chamber. And the more videos you watch about a particular topic, the more videos that are similar to that are served up. And sooner rather than later, that's all you see and hear about. And if that's your only source of information, then it becomes reality for you. And I think we've seen a lot of that. I think social media has become an echo chamber, much like people have been radicalized by terrorist organizations. I think they've become radicalized by extremists in in the United States. I think that um, people just need to be aware of where they're getting information from and to be to be open-minded and to, to watch both sides of an issue. We know that adversaries are contributing to those echo chambers. They're trying to do exactly what we've seen successfully done by Al-Qaeda and ISIS and others. And because those have been successful campaigns and they're doing the same thing. And I think that, that consumers of information, consumers of the media, consumers of the news need to be very open-minded and listen to both, uh, both sides of an issue, both sides of the media uh, so that they can be better informed. And you've got to know and understand the source of information, right? If somebody walked up to you on the street and told you uh, something, you know, you, you needed to give them money or you needed to immediately, um, you know, go lock yourself in your apartment because something was going on, you would question that because you didn't know who that person was. If it was your best friend, if it was your best friend or your spouse, you would immediately do what they said because you have full trust and confidence in them. But somebody off the street, you don't know who they are, what their motivation is, you know, where they come from. And I think we have to look at media the same way. Is this a, a trusted source? And is there is it balanced? And is there another side to this piece that I need to educate myself so that I can make an informed decision? And do you do you think in that in that 
ecosystem where this information's getting pushed in social media. I've seen recent announcements by both Microsoft in terms of what they are uh, observing. Facebook has discussed taking down uh, a big Russian effort to to capitalize on their on their platform to put out misinformation. Are they doing enough? Are there specific uh, actions you think they should be taking that they're not taking? I don't know that I want to wade into that for this reason. I think that Congress has been asking the questions. I think that there have been efforts made. Certainly there have been public statements made by uh, many of the social media platforms that they are taking efforts. I do know some folks that work for some of these platforms that have told me and I have confidence in them that they are taking efforts. Is it enough? or not, I I don't know. I think that will be borne out here in in coming months. But I I think it's something that we have to be attentive to, that they have to be attentive to, and recognize that their platforms are absolutely a huge influence on Americans' perception and ultimately policy and how people react to things. And I think that that they are going to have to be held accountable and responsible for that. Um, So I'm glad that the questions are being asked. I'm glad that they are at least publicly making those statements. And I'm glad that more citizens are hearing it. uh, And hopefully that sensitizes them to the potential for those media outlets to be manipulated so that they're they're better educated uh, and they're they become better consumers because of that. And switching gears slightly, we're in a pandemic and I I don't know about you, but day to day, well, I do know a little bit about you because we've talked about it some, but uh, I'm just seeing a huge growth in the number of victims reaching out because they've been attacked during the pandemic by cyber actors, be they criminal groups or nation states. And there are some who would call while we're in the midst of a cyber pandemic. What are your thoughts on how COVID-19 has, has changed the playing field for cybersecurity? COVID has absolutely made a substantial change in the way people do business. Uh, and from a cybersecurity perspective. So, of course, uh, you know, companies have pushed their employees out of the corporate stack, off the corporate stack, and they're now working. Many people are calling it work from home. We call it work from anywhere because you really can work from anywhere. Those employees may not be uh, educated. Uh, they may not have any technical skills. They're working off a home uh, ISP and a home router that they may not have updated. They may not have patched. And because they're off the corporate stack, many times there's a lack of visibility by the company into what what their employees are doing. Therefore, the target space has gotten much greater and adversaries know that and they're exploiting this hybrid workforce. The companies have had a, on their roadmap a digital transformation to the cloud, many companies, and typically it's been a multi-year process. What we saw in March of, of this year was that multi-year digital transformation condensed to multi-week transformation. It's a growing period and companies are, are adapting to that, uh, but they recognize that their employees are vulnerable and that therefore their network is vulnerable. So COVID-19 has changed the landscape. We are also seeing uh, organizations, both organized crime groups and nation states, exploiting COVID-19. What do I mean by that? Not just because the target space is bigger, but actually using COVID-themed lures in phishing attacks. So, you know, here's a, a news story on, you know, a recent strain that's been identified, you know, that people want to click on because they want to protect their health. Or, um, you know, here's a map of the hotspots spots 
uh, the, the, the emerging hotspots, the re-emerging hotspots, click on this and it's got malware or it, or it directs you to a website that will download malware to your browser. Uh, and then building upon that, the economic stimulus that has occurred and building on the COVID theme, adversaries using that as a lure to get people to execute malware in their environment so that they can gain control and therefore have access to the corporate network. So it's created this ecosystem that is much more vulnerable and much more dispersed and very clearly being exploited. We've seen the number of attacks in our measurement through our intel uh, in excess of 45% greater than this time last year. And we attribute much of that to a uh, post-COVID uh, environment. Wow, 45% year-over-year increase. That that fits anecdotally with what I'm, what I'm seeing, but I hadn't heard that uh, statistic before. I've also noted, and you're touching on it, so there's this general surge. And then in particular, we're hearing more about ransomware attacks against healthcare facilities. And noted that prosecutors in Germany just opened a negligent homicide investigation in connection with the death of a German woman who was turned away from a hospital because they were suffering a ransomware attack. And then she later died. That's that's a significant step to open a homicide investigation. As far as I know, and I'm curious your thoughts, I think that may be the first death that could be attributed to ransomware. Do you think that'll change behavior at some of these institutions? You know, I've always said, um, people ask me all the time, when are people going to pay attention to this? And I've always said when it has a physical impact on them, because Oftentimes, an adversary hacks into a, a network, they steal data, and all of it is is somewhat transparent. You don't actually see the data physically leaving. You know, they're not boxing it up and backing up an 18-wheel truck to the loading dock to leave. It all happens in the ether. And until you see a physical impact in here, and I, I don't have direct information on this, just what I've read in the media about this death that was attributed to the ransomware because they could not conduct the procedure and needed to physically move her. I think that that does get people's attention. I think that we have seen actual attacks on uh, through IoT, the Internet of Things, medical devices that have been impacted by by ransomware and remotely by adversaries where, uh, at least in uh, in the lab, uh, not necessarily in the wild, been able to demonstrate their ability to shut things off or change calibration, which would have an impact on life. Um, but I'll, I'll take it another step further, John. And when you think about critical infrastructure like SCADA systems and the electric power system and um, you know dams and transportation and communication, where those things can be impacted and what would the impact be on life? You know, if you're able to shut things down for days or weeks, some of the attacks we've seen beyond ransomware, you're very familiar with NotPetya and the destructive nature of that attack, where whole systems were offline for weeks, or in some cases, at least operating inefficiently for months because of that attack, where physical infrastructure was destroyed. And I, I, I think that, that that's what's on the horizon. That's not going away. Uh, and that that is absolutely evidenced by what we're seeing right now with ransomware. The number of attacks we're seeing by ransomware on municipalities and hospital systems, uh, educational institutions, where adversaries 
don't really care about anything but the dollars and they recognize some of these facilities are not adequately protected. They don't necessarily have the expertise to protect themselves. They don't have the technology to protect themselves. And they can't afford to be down because their constituents need to study, need to do surgery, need to uh, let their court system operate. And if ransomware is locking up the files that prohibit that from happening, these people are going to pay. So they're all about the money. They're motivated by the by the finances, and they're not really considering the impact on uh, innocent civilians. And that, to me, we we are already seeing it uh, at CrowdStrike, and we are going to continue to see those types of of attacks because they're effective and they're making people a lot of money. I'll, I'll last point on that. Because extrapolating back to the the election, if an adversary, an organized crime group, forget nation states, we've been talking about nation states and the election, organized crime group, if they're able to encrypt the voter registration servers or databases, or they're able to access some other critical part of infrastructure and shut it down through a ransomware attack or a denial of service attack, one, what impact might that have? And two... Uh, on the actual election itself, but on two, on the on the 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 mentality, the morale, the concern of citizens, uh, if that's able to happen. So uh, I said a lot there, so I'll stop talking. But these are the things that are concerning me. And that last is a, is a is a vital point. I've worried about a lot. Just places are getting hit every day. There are thousands of different municipalities involved in an election. So really could see impact, as you say, from a ransomware attack of an opportunistic criminal group that's just out to make a buck that ends, uh, ends up impacting the sense of fairness of the election, even if results are ultimately tab- tabulated. On that, you know, a couple questions. One is, if you were, uh, could make policy tomorrow, would you make it unlawful to pay a ransom? I'll say this, and and you've I know you've seen OFAC rules and the thoughts of the Treasury about where money is going and is it is it fueling this? And and I would say it is fueling it. Um, it's successful. These organized crime groups are making money, and if they if they weren't making money, they wouldn't continue to do it. So my philosophy is you don't pay, and what you do is you are in the preventative mode, and you need to actually have technology in place, and you need to have capabilities in place to actually stop this from happening. And if you can't do that, you've actually got the the ability to reconstitute your environment to get yourself back up and running without paying for it. That said, I know companies that have been stuck in a position that they don't have any way to get out and it is potentially uh, an existential threat to them that they, you know, they've got such critical data that is now uh, unrecoverable that they need to get it back. And you know, they make a business decision and I don't, I don't subscribe to paying those, paying those ransoms because it does encourage and allow this to persist. But I, I understand why some companies have done that. So yeah, two important points there. So one is what you're saying is if you want to avoid being in the situation where you feel like you need to make a payment as a business or a municipality, uh, in addition to defensive steps, kind of one of the most important defensive steps you can think about now and I'm sure you'll join me, Sean, in saying like everyone after they've suffered one of these attacks spends a lot more both time and actual resources on resilience. And these days it's harder to have backups because the bad guys look to get high-level access in your systems if they can, and they go after the backups. So you need to make sure that 
they're both uh, backed up and separate from your network and also that those who have access to it are very few, that their accounts are monitored, that they have multi-factor authentication, in other words, not just a username and password. And the other thing you bring up is uh, last week there was guidance put out by the Department of Treasury and specifically the part of the Department of Treasury that administers sanctions, um, you know, that says, hey, this, this country is a country where you can't do business with them using the U.S. dollar or it's a violation or a criminal group like they've designated famously. There is actually a criminal group that goes by the name Evil Corporation, just in case you were, uh, had any doubts about whether what they were doing was evil, they've named themselves evil. Treasury Department has designated that group. So that means if they're designated, then it would be unlawful to make a payment. So the way the, the law works right now, if it's a designated entity, then, then you're not permitted to make the payment. But if it is, you know, all the other groups that are out there that haven't been designated yet, then it's legally permissible. And uh, Sean, I think you're, you're saying you're encouraging people not to pay, but I don't hear you going so far as to say that that the, the law should change to make it illegal. I honestly want to see people focusing on preventing this from happening. I, I, I subscribe to the fact that if you pay, we, you are encouraging this to happen again to your neighbor, to your to in your industry, to others around the globe. Because again, this is not focused on the U.S. This is a global issue and it's going to go on indefinitely. And some of these adversaries are in places where law enforcement is never going to get access to them. Therefore, they will continue uninterrupted because the, the return on investment is substantial. Companies need to invest in their into their system. They need to put strategic programs into place. They need to, to have technology that allows them to identify these attacks and, and disrupt them before they be they, they impact them. You know, I, I, I think, John, about uh, again, I said earlier, lots of physical and uh, and digital um, similarities. And you think about people, somebody who might be severely overweight, they don't eat right, they don't exercise, they smoke. And, you know, as soon as they have a heart attack, they, they go on a weight loss program, they quit smoking. I hope you've enjoyed this sample from the Cyberspace Podcast. To listen to our full conversation and access all other Cafe Insider content, try the membership free for two weeks. Interested students with a valid.edu email can head to cafe.com slash student. To the many of you who have chosen to join the Insider community, thank you for supporting our work. Mm-hmm.